I think that the resilience and problem solving skills that are coming through here are going to move mountains. You can, you can see the mix of nationalities here. And welcome to the 30,000 Hours Podcast. I'm Monica Bolger, a PhD in education and a senior fellow at the Joan Gans Cooney Center at Sesame Workshop. And I'm joined by my colleague, Leah Plunkett, author of Sharonthood and special director for online education and Meyer Research Lecturer on Law at Harvard University. Thanks for joining us today, Leah. It's a pleasure to be here. I think we're uh, very timely here talking about the start of school. And we're specifically talking about... Um, the different challenges that online learning is raising for families and for schools and teachers. And I'm so grateful to have you here to discuss the legal uh, frameworks and legal dimensions of this, as well as just um, the implications that you see as an, a specialist, actually, in sharenting um, and how families engage with technologies. So we, we were talking before the podcast and uh, about how parents are understandably stressed, anxious, afraid, overwhelmed by back to school. And in this hybrid or online environment, parents are inevitably more intertwined with their kids' classrooms than they would be otherwise. So today what we're going to do is just name and unpack the types of anxieties parents are facing, and then also look at the positive and proactive ways of addressing those while discussing a little bit also some of the um, less supportive um, and less positive um, things we're seeing crop up. So uh, thanks for being here. And why don't we just dive in? Let's start with um, unpacking some of the anxieties you see parents are facing. This is definitely a back to school unlike any other we have ever seen. And I am constantly flabbergasted by just how much has changed since I wrote my book, Sharon Hood, that came out almost exactly a year ago. And Sharon Hood looks at all the ways that parents, grandparents, teachers, aunts, uncles, and coaches share private information about kids online and through other digital technologies. And when I wrote the book, I already took the position that we were living in a world where there was ubiquitous sharenting and a lack of boundaries between IRL in real life and digital spaces. But I never could have anticipated when I wrote this book that we would, a year after it came out, be in a position where we were running a nationwide high stakes real time experiment in what happens when you make almost, not all, but almost every K through 12 public school district in the country, either remote or hybrid. And we are now in a situation where on top of regular back to school anxieties, will my child like their teacher, will my child like their friends, will my, will my child make progress? We're dealing with the anxieties of a global pandemic and everything that that brings with it in terms of real health challenges, real financial catastrophes, deep disruptions to routine, and also a pretty complete eradication of boundaries between home and school environments. Because whether it is asynchronous 
where a child is watching videos and then having to comment on discussion boards or email with teachers or remote synchronous where a child is logged into a remote classroom and is having real-time instruction teachers and other members of the school community and other parents and kids are getting a window, sometimes very direct, into one's own home, sometimes in very intimate environments of one's own home. If a child is zooming in from a bedroom or another living space. So parents are totally turned around, Monica, when it comes to where does home end and school start? And also, what are the boundaries of my family's and my child's private life and their classroom life? And that was something that you and I have had many conversations for a number of years now about the ways in which digital tech was transforming, both in positive and in negative ways, children's experiences. But right now, this is unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes and yes. parents do not know which end is up. And I think that there's such limited guidance just across all of the topics we you, you just described, whether we're talking about how long we're going to be in lockdown, how long, how long uh, schools will be able to be open for those that are, um, how to actually create safe spaces uh, for kids zooming um, for school in their in their homes there's there's such limited guidance and in that space in that gap if I think is fair to say um, parents are filling it and they're not quite sure what they're doing so you mentioned kids are learning from their bedrooms now and maybe not aware of, of the backgrounds and what they're sharing and and um, I, I was talking to someone else who said you know and I think you and I talked about this you know the half-dressed siblings running by or um, maybe parents are on a call with um, you know, private information that for their work, for their jobs, or or whatever. And already we saw um, in the years that we wrote the news, the privacy newsletter together, that uh, families had such a struggle figuring out the balance between uh, what to share, what not to share, how to protect their privacy, where they could protect their privacy, because there's a lot that's unknown, right? Um, that we don't know what tech is doing necessarily. So I think that uh, all of these are such important issues. And in that lack of guidance, in, the, in that gap that exists, um, what are some of the positive practices that, that you're seeing um, for parents and for schools in the learning environment? I think that parents and teachers and students can take lessons from the digital literacy and digital citizenship curricula that have been out there for a number of years. I don't mean that people have to necessarily go and check out a specific curriculum, although there's some great ones out there from Common Sense Media, from the youth and media team at the Berkman Klein Center and many other trusted sources. But that when you think as a parent, okay, what have I been hopefully saying to my child about social media? over the years. I've been saying, be careful about what you put in writing. It, it never stays private. Make sure that you're not sharing pictures of yourself that would not be appropriate for the world to see. Parents right now would be well served, and I include myself in this, of course, to taking a deep breath and thinking, how do I want my kids to see me behaving in an online or hybrid environment? And so when parents are tempted, and again, it's understandable, to get anxious, to get heated, to really double down on 
you know, my child's teacher didn't start the Zoom on time or the sound quality didn't work, all things that are, are real challenges and need to be looked at to try to think about how do I want my children to learn for me in this moment? And consistent, clear, respectful communication, really taking hopefully the workplace practices that folks have and bringing those into the classroom so your child can see you saying, okay, we're gonna problem solve this together makes a lot of difference. I also don't think though that parents should be passive. There's a lot right now that is overwhelming school districts, schools, individual classrooms, and parents who have concerns or guidance or resources should speak up in a way that is being part of the solution. So if you're somebody who actually does know your way around technology, can you offer to have a behind the scenes chat with a staff member who maybe you can tell really needs a little bit of extra help? Can you offer to be an informal resource for other parents? Can you start a Facebook group or another form of online communication with the other parents in your community that again is grounded in positive proactive tips around how to set a schedule, how to use technology, and how to talk to your kids about this in a way that acknowledges the burdens and the chaos and all of the uncomfortable emotions while also saying we have to keep ourselves safe. I would also add another layer to that too, which is civic engagement. I think we're seeing, you know, Cynthia Nixon had a great piece in the New York Times in the last day or so, an op-ed about comparing and contrasting the welcome back calls that she had to her TV set and that her son had for his public elementary school. And her point was, it's very clear where the money's going, mm -hmm. that we can get our studios back up and running, but somehow we can't get our public schools back up and running. And so I'm certainly not saying that parents who notice, you know what? We're not seeing enough money in our community or our state or our country directed toward public education. We're not seeing enough testing resources being deployed. Should absolutely look for ways to speak up about that, whether it's a letter to the editor or attending a local school board meeting or any other form of civic engagement that makes structural change. But in terms of your child's routine, gather the pieces of information that you can gather create a whiteboard or a blackboard or just a post-it note that captures the key information that you and your child will need on a day-by-day -day basis and take it upon yourselves as much as you can, understanding that parents have their own jobs and health issues and stressors, but as much as you can to kind of help captain that ship for your kids will go a long way, I think. It's so true that right now, families are having an unprecedented glimpse into the classroom. And so where schooling used to be, or used to mean, and, and it's so strange saying used to, you know, because this is so new still. But uh, when schooling really was getting your child ready in the morning, maybe walking them to school or making sure that they got to school, making sure they had everything they needed for school in their backpacks, and then picking them up after school or, or them having the bus, taking the bus home, whatever. There was that, that moment that the, the child left and, and experienced school um, autonomously. Um, once we started having tech in schools, 
ed tech. And I'm specifically thinking of like the portals that allow parents to look into um, children's grades and see different things like that. There was already, there were already existing um, challenges with that where parents didn't understand necessarily what they were looking at, right? Like, what does this score mean? What is a seven, you know, uh, and, and um, suddenly having iterative glimpses into their child's performance. So instead of a report card at the end of a quarter, they were getting the full, you know, they were getting um, daily, weekly, monthly updates. And, and even then we saw how parents struggled with uh, the increasing information, like how, what am I as a parent responsible for here? How am I supposed to respond? This seems, this is so exacerbated now by parents being home with their children um, and we're not even, I mean, there's the whole other issue of parents who have to go back to work and the children are still at home going to school, which is an issue of equity that I don't think we're going to get to in this call, but is definitely worth um, putting a pin in for something to think about for later. But how am I supposed to respond responsibly as a parent in this moment is a question I think so many have, like, and they're watching their kids interacting or not interacting. You know, I've, I've had parents say, you know, I'm, I'm off to the side and I see other kids jumping into the conversation and my child's quiet. Should I be prompting them from the sidelines? You know, should I be? And I mean, if you can imagine there's excessive stress on the child, there's excessive stress on the parents. And, um, and I, I do think that the guidance for parents to treat this as much like a regular school day as they possibly can, creating a space where the child is not being observed every minute by the child, by the parent would be um, helpful. But also it's just, this is really new ground. Uh, we just really, parents, parents, teachers, all of us are, are experiencing this for the first time. I don't know if you had any thoughts about guidance for parents in terms of, of uh, of respecting that space for the child, of, of letting them have that safe space of just being, having that identity as student rather than child or family member in that moment. I think it's so crucial and I have guidance for parents actually as well as teachers because I've started to hear from some of my fellow parents about requests or feedback that they've gotten from teachers to be more hands-on. Mm. So your child needs a little bit of help focusing. Can you make sure that you are right there? Oh, your child couldn't type this in. Can you please make sure that you can help them type it in? And so part of the challenge right now is very understandably teachers, because they can't be right there, especially if they're dealing with younger children or children who may need help staying on task, they're looking for the best and really only sources of adult connection they can get, which is the parent or caregiver in the best of circumstances. And we do know, you're absolutely right, we have many more conversations to have around issues of equity and safety surrounding kids who don't have a caregiver right. or a parent in the house or who don't have internet or who don't have a device. But I think that parents and teachers would be well served by having a large degree, maybe more than is comfortable, of forgiveness and permissibility. And I'm not talking about a child who is, you know, heaven forbid, putting up you know, a pornographic virtual background or, you know, disrupting. I mean, right? They, they mean, you know, you give you give kids Zoom backgrounds, and you know, boy, oh boy, I think we can. I'm, I'm hearing some interesting, interesting stories. Not, I have not personally heard of that particular example I just gave. Um, but um, I think that up until it gets to a point where it really is distracting a class or crossing a disciplinary boundary, 
for teachers to have the patience and understanding that if that's a kid that's lucky enough to have a parent or a caregiver there, odds are really good that that parent or caregiver is trying to work, trying to take care of someone, trying to work with another child. And in their triaging of their day, probably don't have the time to be right there to make sure that the virtual background is exactly what it should be. So, and then for parents, it would be, you know what? Your kid is going to be likely overstimulated, distracted, anxious, unhappy. I think it was Vox that just did a long piece on mental health for kids as it relates to back to school season. And no question that even separate from the challenges of the online classroom is the unprecedented collective mental health strain. So I would say that certainly for a parent who is worried about a child's stability or well-being, be within earshot, maybe even closer. But for a parent where you're like, you know, I could be there and try to make sure that whatever seven stands for, my kid's getting a nine, or I could give them them the space to be a student and listen to a different source of wisdom and authority, I would definitely tip the balance toward the latter. Part of what's so challenging about this, Monica, and thinking back to some of our prior conversations, again, not that long ago, right? Just like <laughs> a little over six months ago. Um, but we were already living in an environment of oversharenting mm-hmm. where parents, grandparents, teachers, and other adults were already in a default mode of hovering and sharing out a lot about what they were seeing about their kids, whether it was on social media or in a less obvious way, but giving them digital devices that might track them or their movements. And so when you take the default mode we were already in of oversharenting and layer on this remote or hybrid environment, it is going to take collective renorming and ongoing self and family and school dialogue to try to carve out reasonable expectations for kids and families and also protected spaces so that you don't have the parent who's right there saying, no, 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 hit the space bar. And along those lines, uh, we are already seeing, and I'm seeing this on Instagram, actually, celebrities posting um, pictures of of their kids' Zoom classroom and not and not realizing that that's actually uh, a protected space. Um, so I think it would be really helpful if you talked a little bit about if we if we sort of dove in a little bit to. I don't want to call them negative practices because I don't think they're intentionally negative, but I think that it's important for parents to understand that there's actually laws around protecting child images, especially in classrooms and. Um, and, and so, so speaking a little bit about privacy and respecting that. Absolutely. And this was very much on my mind the other day. I live in New Hampshire and I saw a social media post from a local elected official saying, taking it one step further, actually, and saying, parents, record your child's Zoom classrooms and send me the recordings, <laughs> either of teachers that you think are doing great or teachers you think are doing not so great. And I'm going to share them on a local, I don't, I wasn't clear if it was radio or TV show, but I'm going to share them further. And it was this sort of like almost vigilante approach to monitoring online classrooms. And you're absolutely right. I took a look at that as a mom and a law professor and a lawyer and said, wait a second. And so in New Hampshire, as in many other states, you are required to have consent 
before you record somebody can be a felony if you engage in recording that is not consented to outside of certain, you know, very public spaces, which I would say this is not. Also, children are not going to be able to give that consent themselves. So really, if I as a parent wanted to record my child's Zoom classroom as a matter of making completely sure I was in baseline compliance with criminal statutes, even before you get into privacy statutes, I really should be checking with every single family of the people that I intend to record. And there was nothing in this post that suggested this local elected official was advocating that. So I found that really disturbing. I also think that this, the practice of taking pictures or stills of kids and sharing them out is putting schools and then also individual kids and families in a really tough position because the what's tricky about this is that the big student privacy laws at the the federal level um FERPA, COPPA, and PPRA are going to be binding on the schools the school districts the the state education units there isn't we they never anticipated when they were written that you would have parents with real-time access, you know, to, to the classroom. And, and same even with the current generation of state-level student privacy laws, they were not anticipating this role of parent essentially in the classroom. I think it's important to note that um, the big federal laws were actually uh, created in the 70s, so they, they predate the internet. So none of this was really, could have been anticipated really. Well, I don't want to say could have been, but none these weren't anticipated. So even the Protection of People Rights Amendment, which was revised in the 2000s, um, is, is, applies to a very narrow set of circumstances, didn't fully anticipate the digital ed tech age, and certainly didn't anticipate this moment. And so I do think as a matter of legal compliance and also just pragmatic and ethical compliance, teachers, schools, school districts, state boards should be putting out stern warnings to parents not to engage in recording, not to engage in photography, not to capture anything from their child's classroom without the knowledge and consent of the teacher and by extension, all the involved parties being recorded. Because even though as a where the rubber meets the road matter, there's very little to almost nothing that a school, a school district or a state could do, you know, to stop me from standing there off camera with my cell phone, getting a shot of the screen. I think that schools should be educating parents around the boundaries that need to be in place to protect children's privacy and freedom to learn, even if those parents are not actually school employees or contractors with the school such that there's a crystal clear, you know, FERPA applies to you. I, mm -hmm. There wasn't, I think that that is a stretch, but I do think that schools, school districts, states, and individual teachers would be very well served by putting out clear policies and guidance on this for parents. And also if they hear about 
those situations or just see them on social media, having polite but firm follow-up with parents to say, you know, unless you've spoken to me and the families of every child here, you don't know what these children's circumstances are. You don't know if this is a child who may be part of a very contested divorce and actually having a picture of them on the internet that makes clear that they are enrolled in X, Y, or Z school might give away their location. Or maybe there's something, you know, in the background of that child's thumbnail on Zoom that then can be seen by, you know, somebody who is a dangerous person in that child's life. And so I think that those kinds of screenshots, if they are not for convenings that are clearly public, mm-hmm. right? If you're, go- if you're going to something that is the equivalent of walking into your state house or something that is clearly open to the public, I think we're in different terrain, but the classroom is supposed to have guardrails around it. And it's not a surprise to me at all that parents in our oversharenting culture are doing exactly what you described, you know, taking screenshots and blasting them out. And it is an area where we need to rely more on norms and behaviors than really anything else, because just practically as an enforcement mechanism, you're not going to have any way of stopping somebody who is out of your physical control using a device that is not yours from doing that. And I also do think I want to be clear, though, that as always, we adults have a lot to learn from the young adults and kids in our lives, and that there is a role for social media to shine the light on things that are happening in school settings right now. I'm thinking about the highly publicized story of the high school student from Georgia who took a picture, right, of the Mm -hmm. very crowded hallway with lots of folks unmasked and shared that and got suspended. And I took a look at her picture in anticipation of this podcast, and it was a very privacy-protecting picture. She was largely shooting backs of the heads. You could see that it was a crowded hallway. You could see that there were not masks. I'm sure if I were a member of that community, I could actually figure out who some of those kids were. But it was designed to take a moment in a physical building that was causing a real public health crisis and bring attention to it. And I think that there is a real difference between that student's judgment, which I would say on the whole was good judgment. Do I tend to favor posting pictures that reveal your classmates or anyone else in a protected environment without their permission? No, I really, really don't. But I do think that if you are a high school student and you're packed in like a sardine and you just want to make sure that people know that things are not working as they should, if you are taking a picture in a place where there is a many ways a more limited expectation of privacy than you would have in your own bedroom and you are not showing people's faces and you're doing it to say hey grown-ups who are supposed to be in charge something's not right i see that as a more thoughtful use of digital technology to keep an eye on our new mode of learning than i think it is for a parent to record or even take a picture even if it's done with the best of intentions of a Zoom classroom, I do see those as different, but I recognize that it's complex and that the different ways that we used to think about digital tools 
in the hands of kids in our school spaces. You know, back again, just like seven months ago when we would be talking about things like, should that teenager have even had a cell phone on campus during the day anyway? You know, now we're talking about, is she effectively a whistleblower within her school? I, I think that's the conversation that we're having. And I look forward to continuing to have with you and others in our respective fields and across our communities, because we are truly living through this massive real-time high stakes experiment and the consequences for protecting health and safety, for continuing with learning in a time of crisis, with making sure that hopefully at some point we don't entirely wipe out a generation of parents in the workforce by them having to um, scale back or leave their jobs. These are really existential questions that really deserve a lot of ongoing reflection. And I appreciate so much having the conversation today. Thank you. And just a note of FERPA is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Uh, so those of us working in the privacy space tend to say FERPA, and I just wanted to clarify what that was. Thank you so much for raising such uh, serious issues and explaining the legal dimensions of them. We are living in a time, you, you've, you've mentioned experiment. Um, at the beginning of this, we wanted to say, I, we, uh, I had a discussion with um, Neil Selwyn and Cristobal Cobo about, um, who are two education experts, um, education technology experts on the topic. And we, we said, this is an education, not an experiment. And it was, it was something we really wanted to make sure that the tech companies didn't see this as an opportunity to, um, to you know, A/B test a bunch of different options, um, but but truly, as we move into this, we are seeing it, it, it's a social experiment, it's a learning experiment. It's it's none of us were prepared for this really, um, and we're all trying to figure out how to stay sane, how to cope. And I think that these guide the the guidance you're providing in terms of positive communication with with your children, positive communication with the schools and the teachers, acknowledgement that the teachers aren't being paid more to do this, that they don't have the support for this, that nobody has the support for this. We don't have tech support. We don't have, you know, as you were saying, working parents, it's not like we can, you know, working parents can just hand off the kids to some somebody to help with this or even getting the tech support to um, engage you know, with, with Zoom or whatever video conferencing they're using. Um, I think these are all such serious issues, and I do look forward to uh, exploring them further. So thank you for the starting point, because sharenting and sharenthood is a really um, helpful lens to look at this. And I just wanted to add one more point. In what we're talking about, too, earlier this year, we would have been talking about screen time and how much time the kids are spending. And you know, where they're spending it and with whom they're spending it. And and right now, screen time has just gone out the window for the moment. And so um, that is that I feel is a good um, framing for all of these topics we're talking about that, that um, where our stress and concern and worry once sat has has just dramatically expanded as we're considering really serious issues um, of access of um, support, and um, the future of learning, really. So any positive closing thoughts as we wrap up our discussion today? I think that the resilience and 
problem solving skills that are coming through here are going to move mountains, both in the immediate term, but also in the, uh, in the medium and longer term. And I also find myself these days taking great comfort, and I'm paraphrasing now, but C.S. Lewis gave a sermon back during World War II on the value of learning in a time of war. And he really comes back to this idea that wartime, whether it is actual armed conflict or other collective crisis, in some ways serves to heighten the uncertainty and the tragedy that exists throughout daily life, no matter what. And that the best way to move through it is to avoid being overly excited, avoid despairing, and to avoid stopping. And I do take such great comfort in this idea that there is value to keeping on, keeping on in and of itself. And that the way we move out of the collective crisis, in addition to everyday crises, is through the attainment and sharing of knowledge, whether that is solving public health issues or creating other types of necessary change, there is such immediate and also longer term value in our getting through this collective experiment in one piece. Thank you so much for your time, Leah. Thank you, Monica. It's always so much fun.